Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. <laughs> and as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to the Stages podcast. It's another dark period in the arts in Australia as performances and productions become casualties of the COVID Delta strain and the lockdown and stay-at-home orders. The economic and emotional pain being experienced by creatives, front of house, back of house, performers and producers is palpable. This episode features musical theatre performer Josh Pitterman. On Thursday, he received the news that the scheduled September production of The Phantom of the Opera, presented by Opera Australia, The Really Useful Group, and The Michael Castle Group for Cameron Mackintosh, was to be postponed to 2022, owing to the obstacles facing the construction, rehearsal, and preparation of the show. The Phantom of the Opera broke box office records at the Opera House, an indication that many Australians were keen to see The Phantom take flight once again in our iconic Sydney Opera House. Another opportunity to convene as an audience, an opportunity interrupted with too much regularity over the past 18 months. Josh and I recorded this episode several weeks ago. He'd recently arrived in Sydney, awaiting to begin his continued relationship with The Phantom, a character that has become such an indelible presence in the musical theatre canon, the enigmatic anti-hero beloved by audiences around the globe. Frustratingly, this is not his first experience of The Phantom being rudely interrupted. Prior to the global pandemic that shut down theatres around the world, Josh Pitterman was realising a dream, performing in the West End Theatre District of London, delivering his Phantom to a rapturous reception. Andrew Lloyd Webber's The Phantom of the Opera is eternal, and we know that we will get the chance to see Josh's song take flight once again in 2022. There are two parts to this episode. My conversation with Josh examining his phenomenal career thus far and a postscript recorded yesterday in which Josh generously shared some reflection concerning the news that heralded a hiatus for the Phantom Company. Here's my chat with the charming Josh Pitterman. Are you in Sydney? I am in Sydney now, yeah. Yeah, uh, got out of Victoria uh, just over two weeks ago, so I'm thrilled that I am here and not there. <laughs> Did you have to um, get out of Melbourne in a hurry and uh, just to sort of escape any nonsense that might be brewing down there? Yeah, well, look, we were uh, me and my partner Lottie. We were living in uh, or staying in Port Ferry, which is about four hours down uh, down the coast. Yeah, um, just past. Warrnambool um 
if anyone who knows that sort of neck of the woods and and then just with the way things were going and I guess Victoria's history with with this we were like uh you know what we better we better just get to Sydney quick smart so we were supposed to come up here end of June um and we 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 came up uh, significantly earlier so we just came through Melbourne packed up stuff from the house um changed the bedding for the tenant who's going to go in and kept kept driving it was like escape from Alcatraz. <laughs> well, there's a lot riding on you, I guess, and um, it would be tragic if you were stuck in Melbourne and couldn't sort of reclaim the mantle of uh, the Phantom. Yeah, I mean, we've still got a bit of time before then, but there, you know, there's various media um, things to, to be done and um, and I, I just felt a responsibility, I guess, and, um, and so I just did what I felt was intuitively right at the time and... Turns out it worked out all right. Brilliant. It's funny how the gut knows. Uh, now the Bulldogs are they are they in for a chance? Do you think with the uh, the grand final this year? Well, yeah, I think they are, but um, I won't be there to watch it. Sadly, I'm glad I got to see the one in 2016. I got the the tattoo to remember the day by, and a great a great memory of my dad and I sharing that. We've we've endured many painful losses as. Bulldog supporters, much much hardship and tragedy, but that 2016 grand final is sort of etched in our memory. So, look, hopefully they can get there um, this year. And you know what? Maybe if they do Opera Australia, just be like, hey, take the take the Saturday off, buddy. Quick fight down. You can sing the anthem. Because you're you're a bit of a Bulldogs tragic, aren't you? Yeah, I'm a Bulldogs tragic. I, I, I always have been a Bulldogs tragic. It's sort of um, I had no escaping it. My 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 dad owned a um property out in Footscray uh, when, you know, sort of in the in the 80s and um, it ended up being the Bulldogs souvenir store. So um, so they took the lease on it. So I think I went out there one day when I was about three or four and they decked me out in Bulldogs gear. Dad was a Carlton supporter at the time and um, I think that was enough to sort of, you know, um, you know, make him jump ship. And so we've been diehard Bulldogs ever since and members since probably the mid to late 90s and and yeah i, I mean i i love footy I, I don't love that you know when when i see that they can have crowds watching and, and you know theaters can't have audiences i, I yeah. don't i don't like the contradictions in, in 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 that i don't know whether that's football's fault or not it's probably not but um but i i do love my footy a lot so it all exactly what I'll be doing after we finish chatting today, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so it all started with the costume. <laughs> it all started with the costume. Yes. <laughs> are you a, are you a, a, a AFL man or an NRL man? Or um, AFL. I grew up in Victoria, so um, oh. and likewise, I was a Carlton supporter. But then I went. To, I've been in Sydney for twenty five years now, so Sydney is the uh, is the club. Right, and so and it, okay, so yeah, they were in the competition. And what when did they? When did they shift over? 80, 83, wasn't it? Yeah, that, when I was growing up, they were South Melbourne. Yeah, and then and then didn't they have a, a year where they South Melbourne played games in in Sydney, and then the following year is like, all right, well, you're just the Sydney Swans now. Yes, I think I think at that time they were purchased by Jeffrey Edelstein and Mike Willisey yeah. and and that group. Yeah. Yeah. So um, on matinee day, Saturday matinee days, although it's not just Saturday matinee days now, is it? It can be any night, really. Any uh, night. Are you tuned into the results during performances? I, I want to say I, I am a, a 
a professional. Like, you know, <laughs> of course you are. We know but, that. But between scenes, it's on in the background, absolutely off stage. It, it's if there's a TV in the dressing room, it's on, or just now, just have it on KO. This is not a sponsored ad for KO. Um, have it on KO on the phone. I, I literally do. Um, yeah, or that's do that often. And I'm sure you're not the only one in the company of a show who is tuned into some sporting game. <laughs> no, no, I'm sure. I'm sure I'm not. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not. So, so how else do you like to amuse yourself? Uh, for example, what what genre of music do you like listening to? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I have such a diverse range of things that I I listen to. Um, you know, I, I, at the, today I I spent listening to a mate's EP that just came out. A mate I did beautiful Carol King musical with a guy called Matt Verivis. His EP just came out today and um, it's in a style of music that, that I, I I really like, which is um, sort of John Mayer-esque. A guy called Mark Schultz produced it and Mark is a great singer-songwriter, Aussie singer-songwriter who, who I really like his stuff. So I do like a lot of singer-songwriter stuff. Uh, Favourite bands would be like Fleetwood Mac. I'm a big Tracy Chapman fan. Um, but then, you know, old school, you know, jazz and crooner stuff, Sammy Davis, um, um, you know, I love I love all the the old classical stuff too, Maria Lanza, and into you know all the great great tenors as well. Um, so it like it's um, the scope is is vast. I don't listen to a lot of death metal. Um, that's that's about where I draw the line, or like intense trance. I do listen to a um, some sort of you know more uh, meditative music. I might might say um, Enya. Uh, but yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I've got a, a favorite band in that um, Kundalini genre, I guess is what you call it, which is called White Sun, who I listen to White Sun a lot. Um, and then, you know, I, I actually got to see Archie Roach recently, oh, um, which was awesome um, in, in Warrnambool. And so I've been listening to Archie stuff, and then that's got me onto Jeffrey Gurumul a bit more. I hadn't listened to Gurumul for a long time. It's, so it goes in and out of sort of things, but music plays a huge part in every day for me. Like I just, I go down rabbit holes of music all the time. So yeah, as you, you can see, it's pretty eclectic. It is very eclectic. You want to get a plug in for your mate, Matt Verivis, isn't he doing Bonnie and Clyde at the Hayes? Oh yeah, he is doing Bonnie and Clyde at the Hayes. He's doing Tommy down in Melbourne. He's had a pretty um, prolific year. I think he did Sweeney Todd in, in Adelaide. And um, But he, he's just such a great muso, um, such a great jazz muso and, um, he's, he's just got a great ear and a great sensibility, and um, I, I, I've always wanted, you know, wanted him to want to hear his creations because he's a great writer. Um, and so lockdown was, I think, the perfect opportunity for him to just get busy on on it. And it's a it's a beautiful EP. Like it's it's um actually I saw so I, I had a little geese on the um on the iTunes charts. And ironically, it, it sat at number one on the singer-songwriter charts, and number two was Carol uh, King Tapestry. And I just thought <laughs> there was some beautiful irony there. So, yeah. some, some nice so, synchronicity. Yeah, so it's 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 doing re- really well. I'm really proud of him. He's, he's a he's a beautiful man and talented man. So um, kudos to him. So music playing such a, a big part in your day. Uh, I guess you're vocalising throughout the day. Do you, do you sing in the shower? Do you start with a a song while uh, you're waking up yeah I, I always sing in the shower like and you know you know the only time I don't sing in the shower is when I'm practicing some um some Wim Hof stuff which I'm quite into the 
cold therapy. So the cold showers are not singing showers. It's when you have a juicy warm shower or a hot shower that you're like, okay, I'm in here for 10 minutes. You know, let's let's practice an aria or two. <laughs> uh, why not? Why not? Um, tell me about Wim Hof. What's that? It's cold um, showers. Yeah, yeah. Wim Hof is a... Um, a Dutch guy, very famous for sub-zero temperature swims and, and has studied a lot of the science around um, the anti-inflammatory nature of cold therapy. Um, and there's heaps of great science around that. And it's also, a, a, you know, a really deeply meditative state. And as you can probably tell, that plays a big part in, in, in my life, you know, you know that, that um, mindfulness and meditation stuff and um, spirituality to a degree. And um, But I found, you know, over the course of the last maybe three years, um, diving into the cold ice baths and sub-zero temperature stuff is, is amazing for recovery and um, inflammation. But it's also just, um, I feel like, you know, five minutes in an ice bath is like a 45-minute meditation. You just, you can't help but be incre- incredibly present. There's nowhere else you can be. You can either sort of, you know, run away from it or try and fight through it. But really it's a exercise in surrendering. And I, I, I picked it up because it made me anxious that thought of it and like getting in there the first time I was like, Oh, this is that sort of anxiety I feel before I went on stage. And I'm like, ah, okay. There's parallels in terms of the feeling that I could be receiving here. And very quickly it's taught me the power of my breath and the power of tuning into a deep calmness in moments of, of pressure, high pressure, high performance, um, moments that that could trigger an anxious or, um, fearful, nervous response rather than just a, an excited a, a adrenaline response and so i've constantly used it for for that for the for my body recovery if i've been in the gym too much or so there's various things but it's one of those weird things I'm, people go well what, what the hell are you doing and then i think like um you know you, you get called to go to it at some point in your life if that's something that that is in your radar and then after a while it calls it feels like it calls me so if i don't do it for a couple of weeks i might i feel like something's missing so it's taking care it's therapy for your physical being and also your mental health oh totally yeah on all on all pillars yeah physical mental emotional spiritual yeah so it's really if, um, if they're all in tune then that's only bound to support your voice i guess isn't it oh is absolutely your, yeah your you know what, I, I think so. All we're trying to do is create a, a, a free column, you know, as a singer, I feel like free column for the, for the breath to run through and the sound to run, run through like a surfer on a wave, I sort of feel like. And if there's stuff in the way, whether it's tension or emotional stuff or whatever it is, it's, um, it's, a, it's a blockage in, in the column. And so whatever you do to free up that, that space, the space inside your ears, the space in your heart, the space in your soul, the space just in your physical being, um, you know, that I think that's really, really important. As a singer taking on big roles, that must be a conscious awareness for you constantly. Uh, how's your voice feeling? How do I support it? How do I look after it? Um, yeah. What else do you do? Various stuff. Um, they don't, uh, look, it, it all depends on, on the role. For Phantom, I learned that, you know, once I left, stage door um in london and there were some really cold nights there but once i left stage door um i i didn't i didn't speak until about you know late morning or midday the next day uh, i say late morning probably on a matinee day a bit earlier than, than a night show just give it some good rest um 
steam when I get home, um, just, you know, to settle any inflammation, just plenty of hydration, just water, water, water. And then I think the most important element to it is, is holding yourself in grace, acknowledging that that perfect voice, like when you wake up with the perfect voice is just ready to go, is a handful of times in a day and probably even less in a long run of a show where you're doing playing a role like the Phantom eight times a week. So just just being empathetic to myself and not being too critical of myself and acknowledging that, you know, the 80 to 85% is actually of a standard that is, um, is, is, is really high and that, and, and that's, and to ensure that that, that your 80 to 85% is always wonderful. So that you, you, you really, um, you don't put pressure to be a hundred percent and, and do a 60%. You just go, you know what, this is the pocket. I know where the 80% pocket is. 80 to 85 and, and, and stick there it's sort of like a tennis player trying to go for the lines every time yeah. you know if you're trying to go flat out for the line you, you're going to get a lot of unforced errors so the 80 percent just 10 percent either side of the line of the baseline the tram tracks and um you know you're going to stay in the point yeah not get fatigued yeah totally be economical be smart you know because that's when that's when injury happens, isn't it? When we when we're tired. Totally, totally. And 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 to and be in the moment. You know, you might have a a bung note on a on a Saturday matinee because it's show number, you know, in in London that would be show number seven for the for the the week. And just move on. You know, don't spend the rest of the show thinking about that, beating yourself up about that, because then you're not in the rest of the show. You're not in the present moment. There, the whole the rest of the show's lacked because my mind is in the past. Yeah. So. Well, most recently, London certainly has been a, a chapter in your life um, and uh, you were there for a while. Tell me what you were doing on March 15th, 2020. March 15th. Was that the, that was the, the day that was, we closed, I think. That was the day of the big C and, and theatres yeah. closed, yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually, um, for some reason, took like a, a, a different route to get to work. We lived in... Um, in Clapham, which is sort of where every Aussie lives in in, um, in London, just south of the river, and um, it, it, from from my house, it was a bus from like the base of my street to Trafalgar Square, and then a three minute walk to the theatre. For some reason, I decided to go a different way and 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 walked, you know, through past Buckingham Palace and um, and the Mall there, and um, went down some pretty fancy streets and. And there was just an eeriness around that you just got the sense that you know something was imminent, and and um, and Bojo, Prime Minister Johnson, was going to announce. So it's hard not to call him Bojo because he's such a blubbering sort of, you know, well, he looks um, like a clown of a guy. <laughs> um, you know, so and you just you just knew that something was 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 imminent. So I got to work and I warmed up, and as I do, I get there a bit early, and then it, it was a Monday, which is the start of our working week there, because. Um, Sunday, the Lord's Day is off, and he had just announced that uh, he recommended that people shouldn't go to entertainment venues and theatres and such, and and that was enough for the producers to um to call it quits for for that night. And so we we um went into the stalls and had our regular Monday company meeting. They just said just just go home, and I I, I um <laughs> I I didn't think at that time like any of us that it was going to be anything other than maybe a week or a couple of weeks or you know, a month or worse and that's sort of what we we're talking about i went um uh, upstairs and 
I didn't gather really many of my things. I had done my mask check, so that was like the last time I put on the mask, sadly. And um, and yeah, and just just caught the cab home and and didn't think too much of it. And then the weeks went by, and then after a couple of months, it just they had no other option but to to sever our contracts. And, and that was a really sad Zoom call that we had with about 180 of the company of um, a phantom where we all just got told you're not you're not going back to work um and uh i think later we found out that there was an opportunity for them to do some renovations and and, and now it's a new production of 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 the original it's going in there and i think they started rehearsals uh recently and um but yeah it was it was a really it was a really sad day mate and um but surprisingly like you know i've, I've said it in a fair few interviews that you know playing that role in the West End, um, it, you know, I'll, I'll never forget it. I'll never be more grateful and more humbled by an opportunity. Um, it was like reaching the Everest of career and then just like just someone just behind you just going and just falling off the edge. But I had amazing support from my folks back home and, and my partner Lottie is probably the most empathetic person you'll ever meet just like just a just huge heart and um i just felt surrounded by a lot of love i had done a, you know done a, obviously do a lot of work on my own mental state and, and just let myself feel it feel shit yeah. like just feel really shit for a, a good three four five days just cry when i need to cry and just express what i needed to express didn't hold on to to anything and and then i just said you know what it's it's um this is this is life you know it, it's mm. it's effed and it's i hate it but that's what what can you do like it's out of my control um and you know covid's taught us a lot about that with which we can't control and that with which we need to let go of and it was just another lesson in 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 life and it continues to be because the fragility is still there Uh, see what's happening down in victoria and and the fragility is still certainly there and um and and i guess I, i just went well what can i gain from this experience and um you know, did did a lot more more study into things I was interested in, um, which is like some Carl Jung stuff and um, Joseph Campbell stuff who invented the hero's journey, which a lot of films like Star Wars and Harry Potter all take on. And um, I studied my meditation teacher training so that I could teach this practice that I sort of um, keep pretty sacred for the last maybe five or six years and maybe help some other people out there who are struggling with their anxiety and stress and, um and and suffering in this time how could i i just thought well how can i wrap my arms around this industry without doing it physically how can i do it in, in other ways and um ran some master classes and you know helped out some young um up-and-coming performers on their craft and and, and honestly mate it was shit not to be on stage but it, oh, it was a beautiful year or so like you know we moved down uh, to be closer to nature, which is something we really crave. We moved down to Brighton in the UK. Um, so it was nice for some cold swims. Um, and, um, yeah, I, you know, apart from the debts and, 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 and the suffering that so many people have endured, it was a, it was a year of immense personal growth and great for my relationship too. You know, I think a lot of relationships either came really close together or sadly, um, ended, um but for us it was just it was just beautiful so um yeah a lot, a lot of stuff there mate it's a long answer 
<laughs> I love that. I love it. Um, but yes, out of great trauma, uh, often there is a silver lining. And I think what COVID has done for many people, um, and it's been horrible in the performing arts, but it's caused people to uh, to rethink and reset their lives. Um, sometimes yeah. for the better. Um, yes. dis- discover new things. Uh, uh, reset values. Absolutely. Taught, taught us a lot. Because, you know, just you're just speaking of London, I mean, there's something like 50 theatres in London and 250 across the UK. All of those um, production personnel, creatives, actors, singers, dancers, musicians, just, just it just stopped. Yeah. I just, my heart breaks for them. It, it, it really does. I just, there's nothing you can say or do to make it better for them. You can just be there and ears and support to people going through whatever variation of suffering they're they're enduring Um, I must say one thing it it has helped me with which is something I was really spending a bit bit of time thinking about or pondering was was the was I guess the over identification with the work and I think that happens a lot with people in the performance a lot in any industry you know the first thing we often ask people when we are what do you do exactly yeah you know who, who are you? Or, um, what are you? What are your interests? Or what are your what are your values? Um, and so I think it really helped with that in just sort of separating myself from my self worth being governed by being in work or being in a particular role or being a particular role in a particular location in geographically in this earth. You know, so because um, there's a lot about that. It's like oh, you're playing Phantom in the Phantom up in the West End. Oh, I'm like. Yeah, I'm still Josh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's like putting on a white coat when I go to work or putting on yeah. being at the, the blackboard or, yeah, you just happen to wear a mask and sing a couple of big anthems. Yeah, and we all wear masks. You know, that, that's that's life, you know, the roles that we, we play in all the things that, that we, we do. Um, yeah. But I think it was a great opportunity, said, to reassess all sorts of things, and I think that was that was a big one for probably a lot of people in the arts, just going... Um, you know, I I can still have joy. I can still uh, yeah, have immense joy without it only being governed by whether or not I'm in that show. You know? So let's talk about that show. How how did the Phantom journey in the West End begin and happen for you? Um, yeah, uh, look, it's a it's a show I've always wanted to do, and it's sort of. Um, the carrot of it has been dangled to me a fair few times. Um, 06, there was the Australian revival auditioning and I was just finishing up at uni in Ballarat then. And so that was the first show I auditioned for. And I, I got down right to the end for, uh, for Raal and, and I didn't, didn't get the, the gig. And then about two years later, I was um, performing with the 10 tenors in Germany and they needed to, uh, uh, to replace a Raal and Phantom uh, understudy cover. And, uh, and um, so I sent in a video audition and, um, and got sent from Germany over to Copenhagen where the resident w- w- director was at the time and putting in a production there and um, an audition for that and end up uh, getting offered a contract but couldn't get out of the 10 tennis contract. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, and so it's always this sort of show that's, that's eluded me and I, you know, it, that and Les Mis were the two shows that I, I first got into as a teenager, um, probably like 
many, many young you know, men and women in, in this craft because um, they're so affecting. And um, and so, yeah, I, I ended up in 2018 having a chat with a producer mate of mine after taking, you know, a bit of a holiday after Beautiful and said, oh, what, what would you like to do next? And I said, oh, I've always wanted to do Phantom, but I'm probably a bit young to play the role. He's like, no, you're not. You, sh- you, should, you should definitely go and try and make that happen somewhere in the world. And and so I actually just went, you know what, why not? Like, and why not do what like opera people do and just like study the role, even if you're not going to do it, just like learn it. Yeah. So I contacted Guy Simpson, who is uh, the, he'll be the musical supervisor on the Opera Australia production, but has been the musical supervisor on that show um, probably since it started in Australia. So he's the Southern Hemisphere music the musical supervisor i believe um so he's put in a lot of productions and i just said hey i'd, I'd love to get together and do some coachings we, we had a coffee at brunetti's in melbourne i remember it well uh sort of late 18 and um he said yeah i'm i'm doing a vita at the moment why don't you come backstage learn music of the night and uh and you know what i remember going the first session and he said do you know music of the night? i said yeah i've sung that lots of times <laughs> um but Obviously, I wasn't like really um, tuning into all the all the dots and the note values. He's like, "No, that's not right. That's not right. That's not right." So, had Go you learned learn it properly? Had you learned it with the CD? I think I learned it with the CD. I just sung it in corporate gigs and on yep. cruise ships and right. you know around the house. And yep. and so you go, "Oh, I know it," but I didn't know it, know it. And I love that he said, "No, go away and learn this properly and come back to me." So I came back to him a week later and we went through it. We went through some other stuff and had a couple of sessions and. And it was great. And then about a week later, I, I had this fabulous opportunity to sing um, Ness and Dormer at Australia Day Live concert outside the Opera House. And um, the footage of that wound up with the casting team over in, in London. And I just met my now fiance Lottie, uh, on a on a trip after Beautiful um, to, to the UK and, and thereabouts, other uh, place in Europe. And she, she was from Scotland. And we just started dating and this long distance thing was happening. And so it was a fab opportunity to come over to go and see her and to audition for her and to see how it went. And one thing sort of led to another and I was back and forth with callbacks and, and, and whatever. And, and then finally had to actually video my, my final audition because I had to go be in Australia when Andrew, uh, Lord Lloyd Webber and Sir Cameron were, uh, were available to, to see me do do my final. So um, I put down the, the the final audition and I thought it went really well. And um, the creatives there were so uh, helpful. It was this great bl- blend of being really meticulous but being creative and coming up with your own interpretation. It was a really good marriage. You'd seen they've done this a thousand times. Um, and, uh, it was yeah, it was one of the best audition experiences I've had really. Um, for something that was so high pressure, it felt really relaxed. Um, so that was probably a blend of how they approached it and how helpful they are and probably some of the work I've, I've done uh, to ensure that I, I can stay calm in those situations. Um, and uh, and then I waited a while and, and finally got the, the call that um, they'd like me to do it. And, um, and it was just, yeah, it was a great moment. You know, you, you, you remember those moments. And it was, yeah, very, very special moment. I still get tingles thinking about it. And then next minute I'm moved in with, with Lottie and 
we're living in Clapham and I'm about to start rehearsals and, and everything's just like, like, the, you know, this sort of ascension of life is just expanding and growing higher and higher. And then, you know, I think about it in those terms, I guess something like a COVID had to happen to me because I was flying on cloud nine and needed to get grounded again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, do you believe in fate? Because you describe all of that and it sounds like, you know, it was just your destiny. I mean, that series of happy accidents which all aligned to put you where you are now. Yeah, I, I think that, I, I you know, I've been a pretty spiritual guy and I, I do believe in in the power of, you know, uh, manifesting the things that you, you want in your life and if the why is, is, is really strong and, you you know, your what and your why and your purpose is really really strong then you know at a at a functional sort of pragmatic level you're going to do what I what I did you're going to go you're going to spend so much time learning this stuff you're going to surround your life with this stuff and give yourself every opportunity to, to succeed in in that thing when you when you have tunnel vision on on something and that's happened with lots of things in in my life and I'm sure in lots of other people's lives so um I guess a part of it's fate and uh, and the stars aligning, so to speak. But a part of it is is um, is putting my best foot forward in in the things that I can control, um, and doing the work. You know, like working really hard at something yeah. for an extended period of time. I'm old enough to remember the documentaries that were around when Phantom of the Opera first started, and profiles of Michael Crawford. Uh, spending hours in the makeup chair and then the, the physicality of climbing all of these stairs to get to certain entrances and being a very physical role. Tell me about the role of the Phantom and, and what happens, you know, from the time you arrive at the theatre through the show. Yeah. Um, Without giving too much well, away, of course. Oh, no, no, I'll, I'll give away all I can. What's wonderful about Michael is in, in that dressing room at Her Majesty's, and I hope it's still there post-renovations, there's this giant picture of... Of him, but um, that in the mask, it's sort of quite an artistic picture. Um, it's, it's quite ghostly in many ways, which is, um, you know, uh, a nice touch um, that looks at you as you just as you're sitting on the couch in your dressing room. So you feel like his energy and and his history is always with you. It's like you know, you know, you get to take a little bit of. of, of um, of the the original opera ghosts, you know, with you. So, um, thankfully, since um, Michael Crawford did it, they're um, they're a little bit quicker in the makeup chair. So all the prosthetics are, are, are pre-painted. I think they paint they put them on him and then painted everything. So he was in there for hours. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was in there depending on who was doing the makeup because there was probably four or five different artists who did it over the course of the six months anywhere from maybe 45 minutes to 75 minutes, but usually about an hour. Um, so I'd get to the theatre at about five and have something to eat um, or meditate, have something to eat, that's part of it, have a little stretch and have a warm-up and then um, get into the chair, makeup chair about 6.30 and so that I'm done by um, the house going or the curtain going up at 7.30 because the fan on in it for the first little bit um, and then would spend, put my clothes on um, and then like re-warm up if, in a way because, you know, uh, you got the voice. You'd been, I've vocalised a lot, but just to get it cooking for the show, uh, get my clothes on and then do this thing of looking into the mirror in a particular way 
it's my thing and putting the mask on in a very ritualistic way and that's the best way to describe it and that and that I learned that that was so that that's the time to to be in character you know and um because he is all consuming isn't it and that harks back to Commedia dell'arte in Japanese theatre too. You know, the, the, the actor honouring honouring the mask because it completes the character. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm glad you picked up on that. Um, and <laughs> I'm a drama teacher. And <laughs> and, and I, I, I must say, yeah, he is an all-consuming man. He's a deeply complex, um, you know, man with so many. Um, oh, so much work to do, <laughs> um, and and so you, putting it on and taking him off were, became quite ritualistic because I didn't want to carry any of any, any of him past it. So you know, uh, post the show, cold shower, like you know, makeup off, cold shower, and then you know, exit the building without carrying him. Yeah, any of that residue, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is which was really important. It took me a little while to learn that, and I'm so glad that I've had this experience, that experience, and I can bring some of those things into doing it again here in Oz. Um, he's, but to be honest, like as challenging and complex and um, vocally demanding as he is, it's also it's just the most enjoyable, juicy, cathartic, um, transcending experience I've ever had on stage time and time again. It's written so beautifully for him. As you said, it, it is really physical. He does rock up in all sorts of different places and there's so much hiding that's done. I know there's a bit of a gag in the industry. Oh, he spends about, you know, 11 minutes on stage and like, you haven't done it. So he doesn't. The first scene alone is like over 11 minutes. So, um, so yeah, there's just, yeah, he's just sort of, he's omnipresent. And that's also, like, literally, you feel like you are because you're hiding in scenes so often. But also when he's not on stage, he's talked about all the time. Um, And and he's just, he's this this ever-present thing. So there is this power and this energy, um, uh, a a commanding feeling that you have from from being this sort of, that that sort of presence. Um, And and that does translate to when you're on there and you feel the energy of everyone else talking about you and, and giving you um, that, that power. So you know that the, the full company is responsible for his weight and importance. If they're not on and, and they don't really fear him or, or revere him, um, then no matter what you do, you actually, you know, it's, it's hard to, to win an audience over. So his importance, his power is, is, is very much... Um, you know, 34 people are responsible for that. Um, so, yeah, but it's, yeah, I, I just love, I love playing him. I love going into all the, the depths of all his, his stuff, you know, his, um, for, for me, I, I, you know, the interpretation of him has been done many different ways. Um, but for me, it was beyond the deformity um, because I felt like that, that's just a physical ailment or as painful and as, as as insecure as that makes the man it's the fact that he's abandoned as a child and what that does to a child when you know a mother looks at you and can't deems that you're unlovable what unlovable and abandonment can can do to a to a to a man through boyhood and childhood and then obviously being thrown to a circus and you know um 
yeah, like that line who says in the final there, this face that earned a mother's fear and loathing, a mask, my first unfeeling scrap of clothing, like this sort of hessian bag that, you know, just, oh, it's like, it's so much pain. So I took it, I took his whole story from that, from, from abandonment. And, um, and yeah, uh, I, I, um, I'm getting really excited talking about it because now I can't wait to do it again. Um, so, so yeah, he's, um, as I said, it's complex. He's interesting. He's a vocal, um, you know, sort of challenge each night. Um, and, and so you always feel like there's the opportunity to play and expand and grow and, um, he's always breathing. You're never on autopilot. Did you go back and read the original novel? Yeah. In preparation? Yeah. I did. And there were some beautiful things in that that, that helped me. There's a wonderful line um, quite early on about, about the beauty of his voice. And so I really um, explored how to create um, a, a sound for him, a, a character voice for him that was, um, you know, was was highly Victorian and and of the aristocratic elite, and um, so that there was just just beauty in the sound because the sound is huge for him. He's speaking in all spots that you can't see him, so that has to be affecting. Mm. Um, and and for her, for Christine, it, it has to grab at at her heart immediately. It has to be comforting and fatherly, but also attractive, and you know so. I thought a lot about that, yeah. And that uh, was all book. Have you been lucky enough to uh, visit the Garnier Opera House in Paris? I With haven't. Oh, I, I've been there and I was astounded. What's it like? It's magnificent. It's it's huge. It's opulent. And it's just like the Maria Bo- uh, Bjornsson sets. Um, you feel like, and it's got this gorgeous Chagall uh, mural at the top on the on the ceiling. But um, you'll, get there one day. you'll get there one day, I'm sure. And the stage is huge. Yeah. yeah, I know in the new production in 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 London they they have redesigned um, some of the proscenium to to sort of allude to that a bit more. So the boxes that used to be on stage when they're when the operas are on are yeah. now in the house. All oh, right, okay. Which is quite quite a lovely touch, and I actually think Maria probably would have really liked that. Yeah. When do you go into rehearsal for Sydney? Uh, end of July. Okay, so it's nearing. Um, yeah, nearing. But I, I feel like I'm already going into a lot of um, ideas and stuff. It is a new production, which I'm very aware of, um, and um, you know, it's a new staging and, and new costumes and new design and and the direction. Although, you know, it's we're not you know reinventing the wheel entirely. Does bring it into a more human and naturalistic world and so there's probably a more contemporary edge to it which i actually think is is exciting um there is something quite stylized about the original um certainly for some of the other characters you know pianji and uh, the tenor and, and carlotta and the managers there's there can be a foppiness to it that i think this uh new production sort of just makes everything a bit more human and and I think audiences really appreciate that just in 2021, just be able to connect to something a bit more truthful. Do you have a favourite moment in the show? Uh, yeah. Uh, it's not not just one. There, there's two. Um, number one is uh, 
after she sings that glorious top E high note at, at the end of um, the title song, Phantom on the organ, that that regal animal that that sort of comes out, I have brought you to the seat of sweet music's throne, to this kingdom where all must pay homage to music. It's like it, he's he's prepared for this moment for so long, but that the sort of emotional charge of her hitting the summit of that note and the animal within him coming out on that organ. Um, so, so that into music, the top of music of the night, I just love that and the transition. Um, and then e- equally um, the, the end of the final air, um, Christine, I love you as she leaves, just breaks my heart every time yeah. and, and him left alone there, you alone can make my song take flight. It's over now, the music of the night, you know, that, that part there just... Um, I'm getting goosebumps and shivers just, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, recalling all yeah. of that. Yeah, because all the, it's so um, cathartic, that, that part, you just, you know you can actually, no matter what, you can leave your heart on the stage. You're like, yeah. There's a lot of people that love this show and have seen it many yeah. times and how extraordinary uh, to be the man playing Phantom in the Sydney Opera House. Phantom of the Opera. You must be it's, beside uh, yourself. Yeah, there's like 60 of me in a row, mate. I'm that far beside myself. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, it, 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 same with the West End. Uh, like, I, I, um, I just see myself as such a, like, just normal guy. Like, I love that we talked about footy first because that's what I would talk to anyone yep. about. So, yep. to, so I, I know that this is what I'm doing and I know that it's um, a, a, it's a big deal. Of course, it's a big deal, but like, um, so I don't take anything away from, from that, but um, equally, uh, I just, yeah, I just pinch myself. It's just sort of like, I just sort of exist in this sort of surreal nature to it. I sort of don't, don't believe it, but then I'm just happy to do it with, you know, in an easy way, you know, sort of no, no stress about it other than, you know, uh, you know, putting pressure on myself and having expectations of myself. Um, but as you said, people love this show and um, that that's what's kept it going, I think, is the fandom of this show. Um, it, it affects people deeply and people do see it literally hundreds of times. Um, you know, I'm sure people in the 90s, um, you know, made all I ask of you their, their first wedding dance or something that took them down the aisle. I mean, the score is just so loved. And I mean, there's a reason why this thing has, has lasted until COVID, you know, 34 years on the West End and pretty much the same on Broadway. Um, it's it's just so, so loved. And I, I, I met so many of those fans in the West End and had them write to me and, and send me gifts and draw beautiful artwork of, of me in the mask. And they, they just care so much. And um, and you just want to wrap your arms around them all and just say thank you because um, ultimately they're the reason it's it's continued and and the fandom grows because anyone who sees it really, um, bar a few, are, are, are affected by it. And you must be uh, chuffed too that you're following in the the line of Australian fandoms of Anthony Warlow and and Rob Guest and now we've got Josh. Yeah, Pierre. I mean these guys are they're my heroes, you know, like. Um, you know what Guesty did for theatre in this country is is huge, and and Anthony, 
um, you know, for me will always be the greatest musical theatre voice I've ever heard. Um, you know, I still listen to Anthony and just go, you know, those back in the swing and best of act one and uh, midnight dreaming those albums and just go, it's the most purest, most beautiful baritone voice that maybe music theatre's ever seen in the history of the world. Um, and what they gave to this role and, and, and Marina as well, like they made it iconic in this country. They, they created a fan base that will come and see myself and, and everyone else do this. So I'm, I'm really grateful for them, for them too. And, um, I mean, I hope one day, you know, once it's all up and running that I don't know Anthony that well, but I've met him a few times and, um, you know, uh, we, we have, we have lots of beautiful chats over the, the years. I hope that we could just chew the fat about it one day and just, you know, talk about our experiences at a really human level because um, I'm sure he's got a wealth of wisdom. Well, you're joining a very special club, but you'll be defining your own phantom and uh, creating a whole new legion of fans. Um, you're playing in September at the yeah, Opera House? September and October at the Opera House and then we head down to the Art Centre in, in Melbourne and, uh, and and play there for a while. So um, I, I know that Sydney's selling like hotcakes and maybe it's close to sold out. There might be a handful of tickets left, but uh, jump on the Melbourne train. It's Josh, a good time of year to be in Melbourne. Is it? <laughs> yes, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, have a weekend and see the, the footy as well. No, no, actually, you won't be able to because you won't be down there yet. Um, no, but it's Australian Open time and, like, uh, all of that will be on. So, yeah. All of that, absolutely. Josh, thanks so much for uh, for this conversation and giving us a bit of an insight into your journey and, indeed, the role of the Phantom. All the best. Uh, you're going to be fantastic and um, I appreciate right. your time. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks so much, Peter. I really appreciate it. Josh Pitterman, welcome back to, to Stages. That conversation that we just recorded, we recorded that June 18th, not so long ago, but, um, you know, uh, two days ago, we, or well, Thursday, actually, three days ago, we, we got the uh, announcement that uh, your Phantom of the Opera has been postponed until 2022 because of the, um, the COVID lockdowns and um, stay-at-home orders. Uh, is it a, a sense of deja vu for you? Uh, yes and no, Peter. It, 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 it actually feels very different, I must say. The, the outcome um, may be similar, but the, the feeling is, is, um, is very different. Yeah, of course, because you were, you were playing the Phantom in, in the West End when uh, COVID shut your production down there. Yeah, and, and look, that, that was sort of a dragged-on experience in terms of, you know, we, we um, I think we had our final show you know, mid-March, and then it wasn't, look, time becomes a blur in COVID, but I don't think it was until like June, July that we actually were given our notice. And so it's sort of like there was a dwindling of, of hope and an acknowledgement of how things were getting out of hand. And there was time to, you know, reflect and, and move away from the, the show. And I'd done it. This is the reverse order. This, this is you know, really until Thursday, I had no idea that this is how this was tracking, that we couldn't do the show. So um, so it was more of a shock than anything else. Um, and so the feeling was was a far more emotional reaction to it. Um, you know, I, 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 I was, 
it was it was really sad last time, but this was this was shattered. Um, you know, I, I, I was I remember when I found out about getting the role, and I said that I was it was it was tears of joy, and and I, and I was I was in a in a mess on on Thursday for some of it, just sort of you know curled up in a fetal position, just purging and crying, and um, and I must say, mate, that a lot of the tears aren't for myself. They, there's an element of that, but the greater element is for where we are at as an industry and how sad things are for the state of affairs for the arts in this country at the moment and, um, and the pain that everyone is, is experiencing at the moment as, as an artist right now. Yeah, it's uh, incredibly difficult for everybody. Um, yeah, frustrating. Phantom of the Opera, the production that uh, we will see next year, uh, had broken all box office records you know, more than 100,000 tickets sold for the Sydney Opera House. Uh, there are a lot of people looking forward to it. They will be sharing the heartbreak as well. Indeed. I mean, you know, ultimately it's a, it's a collective. It's, it's a, you know, the, it's a shared experience, the theatre. And, um, and if, if we're not doing it, the fans aren't enjoying it. Spectators don't get to experience it. And that's, it's deeply, deeply saddening for them. And I must say that people need theatre now more than ever. They need to, es- to escape to that other world um, just to get away from all of this for a couple of hours. Yeah. Um, and not, not only does, you know, Phantom provide a pretty natural sort of escapism route, but it's a bloody great show and, um, <laughs> and it's so enjoyable to witness and, and um, and be a part of as an as an audience member, which I'm lucky to be be that as well at time in my life. And um, so I, I I feel for everyone who's um, going to have to wait until next year. But I'm glad it's a postponement. I'm glad people can hang on to their tickets and hang on to their seats. And ensure they sit in that same spot that they spent hours on internet, you know, waiting in the the cyber queue for. So I'm I'm. That's what I'm happy about, that we know that it's going to happen next year. We should spare a thought too for those producers who were, were bringing the show to us, Opera Australia, the Michael Castle Group, really useful group, Cameron McIntosh. I mean, we've got to hope that, that those guys can stay together as well because uh, they're, the, they're the employers that sort of create the work that we can all be part of. Yeah, uh, look, I think a pretty strong relationship between... Um, Michael and Cameron has existed for a long period of time. Um, Michael worked for Cameron and then obviously um, Les Mis um, is, uh, you know, it was something they worked on here and then Mary Poppins in the future. They've got a really strong existing relationship and um, I think, you know, they're four pretty powerful men um, in theatre, Lyndon, Michael, Cameron and Andrew, and um, I think they all want this to happen. No, I don't think, I know from horses' mouths that they that this is something that they all deeply, deeply want to happen. It's a real love for this show and and um, you know it's a, it's it's a very very popular show as we saw by the record breaking ticket sale. So uh, I have no doubt it it will happen happen. I just feel for them as um, as producers and as men as humans who uh, you know have gone through the ringer these last eighteen months and. They've all had to sacrifice so much of themselves and, you know, it's just that 
it's so exhausting for him. Like, I, you know, I was heartbroken watching Andrew the other day announcing that Cinderella was, you know, supposed to open and then, you know, had to could, couldn't open because of these outrageous laws that mean that if one person gets COVID in, in the in the company, the whole thing has to shut down for 10 days, even though everyone's negative. I'm sure if a football player in a football team got COVID, he'd just sit at home and wait it out while the team goes and plays. I mean, you know, there's contradictions left, right and centre that make no sense at all. And we've got to hold the governments to account on this, um, what I can only call utter bullshit. So, yeah, I feel for those guys. Yeah. You've obviously invested uh, a lot of your soul, a lot of your heart and passion and, and talent into preparations for rehearsals, which would have commenced uh, uh, tomorrow, Monday. Um, there's obviously going to be a bit of a grieving period for you now. How are you going to look after yourself uh, in these these coming weeks? Yeah, you mentioned been doing a lot of rehearsal. This very room here in my um, apartment in Bondi Junction, um, I mean, the whole of, the whole of Bondi, Junction, you know, <laughs> has, has copped a fair whack of phantom over the last month or so, I, I assure you. I mean, I sort of got to a point of seeing through the whole score maybe four or five five times a week, you know, just building up the muscularity it requires to to do that that role and, and the, the various sprints, I sort of like to call it, because he comes on in these chunks and has to sprint through it in a sort of very um, dynamic way. Um, so, yes, uh, uh, but the second part of your question, look, um, uh, you know, anyone who follows me on social media probably gets um, tired of me sharing free meditations for people who are struggling at the moment. And that's a part of my purpose is to, um, to help people with their, their mental health because I've had my own stuff and I share a lot of, um, a lot of you know, that, that sort, of, sort of stuff because I have a real strong, um, I'd say, or robust toolkit of, of um, things that I do, um, of ways to sit in, in, in being and, and, and witness and discern and um, get zoom out on, on situations so that I can, you know, separate myself from, from my thoughts and not catastrophize thoughts. So meditation is one. I get into nature a lot exercise, nourish my body with good food, try to look after what I'd say the four pillars of health are, and that's spiritual, physical, emotional, and mental. And I spend a lot of time on that and have for a lot of years, and we've talked about that, my own, um, you know, mental struggles and anxieties and, and, and whatnot. And, and um, uh, I, I feel like I'm well prepared for, for, for this in, in, that, in that way. But a part of that is sitting in the pain and allowing it to come up and, and witnessing and watching what sort of feelings and attachments um, come up. And I did plenty of that on Thursday. Um, and that's what enabled me to have such sort of cathartic cries is the best way to describe it. So I, I gave myself the opportunity for that. I thought you'd very eloquently uh, and poetically describe this, this moment as, um, you know, reminding us that a lotus flower grows out of the mud and, you know, this muddy time that we're going through, there will be opportunities for, for performers, for shows to bloom again. Um, let's hope that it's not too far away. Yeah, absolutely. I use that phrase a lot um, because the mud is so much good comes, comes from the muds. 
and the yuck and the, and the stickiness and um, yeah, uh, I, I mean that, that that expression is one that certainly holds true in, in this situation. But I, I must say, uh, further to that and what I, what I mentioned on social media is that um, you know, in in all the shit that we're experiencing, all the trauma and um, fear and um, I, I I guess I say um, pain. Um, that we're, that we're being exposed to, anger, frustration. Um, I, I just can't get over how much, you know, people are still willing to go out of their way. And, um, some of the comments and messages and calls that I received, um, people out of the woodwork, people I haven't spoken to in many, many, many years, Peter, who just felt, just empathised, just had an a, a, a expansive level of compassion in their hearts that they... They just was just there was so much love, and um, I've been overwhelmed by that. And um, yeah, uh, I, I think it's now my, my duty to ensure that that um, as many people around the, you know this industry who are suffering receive that amount of love. And so I'm I'm making it my duty to to be yeah, a part of um, bringing the industry back together, um, even in these tough times. Really. You know, there's a feeling of fragmentation of, of loneliness and maybe some of that is chosen. People want to just step away. I, I get that. But um, we're always better as a collective. And so, um, you know, I, I want to be a part of, um, of holding hands with everyone. Well, mate, uh, I absolutely know that once again you will make your song take flight. Um, <laughs> to use a, a line from, from Phantom, um, look after yourself. And uh, we so look forward to 2022 when uh, we can see you uh, give Australia your Phantom of the Opera. Thanks so much, Peter. Thanks for having me on twice. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a lovely, lovely appendix to the conversation that we, uh, we've we heard earlier to uh, to get some reality on, on uh, you know, how this horrible virus, this pandemic is, is affecting everybody in the arts industry. Mm. And they need to hear it from individuals who are really experiencing it, not as sort of like a, a collective of this production or like, you know, a real, you know, get to the micro. Thanks, Josh. Take care. I know we all send great love and condolences to Josh, his Phantom Company, and everyone associated with the Phantom production, Opera Australia and associated producers, and to the many artists and creatives around the country at present impacted by the inconvenience, postponements and horrors confronting our vital arts sector. We will gather in theatres, concert halls and opera houses again. I just hope it's sooner rather than later. On an optimistic note, however, we will see Josh Pitterman take flight as the Phantom of the Opera when it is able to be staged at the Sydney Opera House, followed by a Melbourne season in 2022. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Peter Ayers. You've been listening to The Stages Podcast. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time. <laughs>